know. <laughs> this is the Word of Truth radio broadcast. It was very difficult at first doing radio, because the first place I did radio, um, I... <laughs> I would, I would be sitting at a place, standing, actually. I would stand in the production room, which was, you know, with a microphone like this, and a big black painted piece of plywood in front of me, like right here. You're not talking to anybody. You're not talking to anybody, and you're like... But then after a while, it's like you get into it, and you're like... It's like there's a thousand people out there in your mind. You know, you're just going. But at first, first few times, like... This is weird, you know, just talking to this black wall there in front of you. Anyway, so I got into radio first because there was a smooth operator at one of the radio stations in Jacksonville. Jacksonville at that time, believe it or not, back in the early 80s, had five AM Christian stations and four FM Christian stations. It was one of the biggest markets in the country. So this one station was the Rose of Jacksonville, W-R-O-S. And it was the Rose of Jacksonville because the guy who managed it, his wife's name was Rose. So <laughs> Elwood was his name. So he would put these people on there that would just drive me nuts, you know, doctrinally. So I called him. I mean, I'd only been, I'd only been saved two years. I'd listen to these guys on the radio. I'm like, that guy's teaching, you know, false doctrine. So I called up the manager. And, uh, well, Brother Price, you see, you know, if we had more people like you who could come on and teach, you know, sound doctrine... So I took it as a challenge and went on the air. Anyway, that's another story. Are we ready? Okay, thank you. Father, we thank you again for a time to come study your word. And um, we just ask for your help now as we look into the book of James. And we... Thank you for everyone that's come this morning. Thank you for those that worked and labored to prepare food. We don't take it lightly, nor do we take it for granted. Another token of your goodness to us, the ability to even eat and enjoy food, a blessing that comes from you. And so uh, we pray now for this time in the Word, Lord, that you would help us as we, we look together into these things and teach us those things which you'd have us to know. And we give you thanks again in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So let's open to the book of James. That clock can't possibly be right. It is 10 o'clock. Wow. It's a good thing we started at 8. <laughs> James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers or various trials, divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. 
But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind, and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof faileth, falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So, it also, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways." Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Amen. Um, I'm not going to go into this in detail, just to throw it out for your thinking. There is an interesting thing here, because as I mentioned last night, this book of James in, in the English, the title to it, James, um, Jacques, or in the Hebrew, Jacob, the book written by Jacob, written to the twelve tribes, is interesting, isn't it? And you can actually, if you go through the book, there are some interesting correspondences to the actual 12 tribes. If you remember what Jacob's assessment of them was, when you come to what's called sometimes in the book of Genesis at the end there, uh, the judgment seat of Jacob at the end of his life. Anybody just, this is a, just a, you know, really throwing a question out there um, without any preparation. But anybody remember the firstborn? Who was the firstborn? Reuben, right? You remember what the characteristic of Reuben was? Unstable. And what's the first thing we read about in this passage? A double-minded man who is unstable in all his ways. And interestingly enough, if you move through the book, you can actually trace the characteristics of those 12 boys throughout this book written by Jacob, or James, as we call him. So that's, that's an interesting thing, and it's, it's really worth looking at if you want to take the time to do it. But that's not so much what we want to do this morning. What I thought we'd do this morning is just to um, get into the book a little bit, but one of the things that struck me moving through this first section that um, I was asked to take up to the first 12 verses is how many what I would call correctives there are to some thinking that is found in certain circles, some uh, wrong thinking that's found in certain circles and taught in, in certain ways. So um, when we think about this, and I'll, I'll mention a bit more about this, Lord willing, tomorrow night when we look at the overview of the book, but James begins with James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I believe, and I think there's good um, 
evidence for it that this James was the half-brother of the Lord. Um, so, as we begin to think about that, you, you remember that um, if this indeed is James, who's the half-brother of the Lord, and we can find that in the Gospels, that, that, that is one of the first correctives, isn't it? Uh, there is a doctrine called the perpetual virginity of Mary, which is not true according to Scriptures, right? Because, um, well, we'll just look at one, for instance. Let's turn back to uh, the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 15. Keep our place there in James. I think it's chapter 15. Let's look and see. Thirteen, thank you. Thirteen fifty-something or other? Yeah, fifty-five. Uh, verse 54, When he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, and as much as they were astonished and said, Whence hast this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? And so on. So one of the, again, as the word of God does answer a lot of things that float around in people's thinking or sometimes taught as doctrine in certain religious circles, um, one of the first correctives is that the Lord did have brothers and sisters, that Mary was not a perpetual virgin as is sometimes taught among millions of people who believe that. So, um, again, when we think about that, it is a corrective. It's interesting, isn't it, that James refers to himself as the servant of the Lord, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have to stop and think to yourself, too, at least I do, in my mind, of what it took for a Hebrew, a Jewish man, to put Jesus Christ on the same level as he does God. Right? Because he doesn't just say he's a servant of God, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think in the New Testament there's only... a few times that that type of terminology is used. But um, then when you begin to think about it, what it took for him to overcome familial ties, that is family ties. Now, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. Um, some of you, perhaps many of you have been or were, which is a tremendous blessing. But sometimes it's a little difficult for us to relate to people who, at tremendous cost, at tremendous cost in family, uh, come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, even being written off by their family, abandoned by their family. It's been t said before that sometimes in Jewish circles, if a person professes faith in Christ as the Messiah. They even perform burial services for them. They're dead to them. And that's a powerful thing, isn't it? So what it was for James, who did not at first believe, 
which is kind of, you know, interesting, isn't it, to think about? But it brings us to another corrective. And that corrective is that there, it's a myth and a fable to think that Christ, when he was a child, performed miracles. He didn't. John tells us in John chapter 2, this first beginning of miracles Jesus did at, at the wedding of Cana at Galilee when he turned the water into wine. But there's a, hundreds of millions of people who believe that Christ, when he was a child, did miracles, made little birds out of clay and then caused them to come to life and all kind of things like that, you know. And, and we think, that's, that's crazy, right? But literally hundreds of millions of people believe those kind of things seems to me that had the Lord done that as a child his brother certainly would have thought well this is an unusual uh, brother you know but none of that his brother didn't believe on him at first and then came to believe on him perhaps uh, at, after the resurrection there was an appearance we read in 1 Corinthians 15 to James but there were no childhood miracles that we read about. And then, uh, I like the fact that he refers to himself as James, the servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives him his full title, doesn't he? Now, I want to be careful here, because I don't think people do things maliciously for the most part, or, um, you know, with ill intent. But I remember years ago, and it, it, it's always been a little bit rough around the edges when you say it, because people sometimes take it wrong. But years ago, uh, when I first got saved, there was a man that influenced me greatly spiritually, taught the Word of God. And, and I remember him teaching. He said, you know, the only time you ever find in the Bible anybody referring to the Lord Jesus as Jesus was the demons or Judas you're like whoa then you begin to examine the evidence and you find the evidence supports that now they will, he will be referred to that way historically Jesus did thus and so on right but you'll never find any of his followers referring to him personally as Jesus. Interesting, isn't it? The demons call him that. The unbeliever called him that. But his followers always called him Lord. Or Lord Jesus. Or the Lord Jesus Christ. It might be interesting to put into the, the pool of our thinking, right? That, that, that title... That of what James is going to call, uh, even in this book, that worthy name. That worthy name. How we refer to him. Again, I'm not trying to fault someone for, you know. But if we go by what Scripture says in the example of Scripture, that is interesting, isn't it? To begin to think. Anybody have a. A comment or something or a question at this point? Thought? Would you say there's significance like the Lord Himself in the, in, in, in 
the end of the book of Revelation, he says, I... Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, you know, but if he's just identifying in that state, in that point, but, but, but you know, his nickname uh, and humanity, mm-hmm. but he goes right on to describe it, the root of the offspring. Yeah. That's a fascinating passage, really. It's the only place I know in the Bible where um, it's almost as if not in actuality, but it's almost as if the Lord tells John, give me the pen. I, Jesus, testify these things unto you. So three times in that chapter you have the testimony. Testimony, you see. And uh, so that's that's interesting, isn't it? But he does refer to him that, that way. But he refers to himself in that way, yes, identifying with his humanity, but the root and the offspring, which is the deity and the humanity, combine. But when others refer to him, they never, his followers never refer to him, followers never refer to him as just Jesus. So that's that's again interesting to think of. Anyone else? Back up a bit. Yes. Regarding his uh, the Lord Jesus' childhood, mm-hmm. there was the incidents where his family went into Jerusalem and they left and left them there. Mm-hmm. And they came back. All of the, uh, the uh, religious people were saying, ah. Yeah. Oh yeah, well his wisdom was you know far beyond his years in that sense, you know, certainly. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the point. Yeah. Yeah. And they marveled at the at the wisdom of a child who would sit and instruct the teachers, so to speak. But even then his brothers didn't apparently at that point still did not whether they just thought he was, you know, exceptional in his wisdom. It is interesting, isn't it, to think about how the scripture is relatively silent on his childhood. There's very little except that passage in Luke that tells us anything about his childhood. And that's not till what, 12 years, I think. It passes over it. Um, I'll tell you an interesting story, at least it was interesting to me. Um, the first time I ever went to the Bahamas was not on a great missionary journey. It was on a fishing trip. And uh, we left out of out of Palm Beach Inlet, headed over for West End, Grand Bahamas. Four of us, me, Jonathan Brower, a couple other guys in a boat, 100 years ago. And uh, so we landed at Walker's Key. And, you know, you have to clear customs when you get on foreign soil like that. Well, back then, Walker's was a very thriving place. And there was a little... You know, literally, there was an airstrip, which wasn't much, and uh, somebody pointed us to the customs office, which was a, a room the size of that bathroom over there. And finally, somebody showed up, which wasn't the customs agent because he was gone, but we didn't know it at the time. And so we're sitting there talking. Well, I was looking around the room, and all around the room, taped to the walls, were yellow legal pad you know, pages of scripture all around the room. So the man that was there 
checking our passports and everything. I said, you you write all these out? Because they were like handwritten and taped to the wall. He says, no, 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 no. That, that's the man who who's not here. Those are his. Oh, interesting. I said, so, you know. Oh, well, you know, he says, no, that, that's not me. That's him, you know. I'm into uh, the lost books of the Bible. The lost books? Oh, I didn't know there were any lost. Oh, yes, there's a whole, you know. Uh, all these lost books of the Bible that were written, that would have been recovered, and la da 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 da, you know, and they tell all about the life of the Lord and what he did when he was young, and da, 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 you know, that was interesting. So I said, did you, ever, did you ever think that in the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, you know, John, that in some of those books, almost a third to a quarter of those books, deal with one week of the Lord's life. You know, Mark, let's say, a third of the book. It's like they move very quickly to get to that one week of his life, and then they spend a third of their material to focus on that one week. Why do you suppose that is, that they don't cover his birth? I mean, his, his, you know, his life, his childhood, all those. Because they're moving you towards something. You see. It's interesting, isn't it? What the Scripture is silent on. Anyway, so anything, anyone else, sir? Thought? A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever I see that in the Scripture... I ask myself, am I? Am I? I've thought a lot about it. You know, I joke sometimes about liking to, if you go to cemeteries, graveyards, reading tombstones, you know, and see what's on there. It's interesting, isn't it? My favorite's the one that supposedly was in Key West where uh, the man had put on his tombstone when he died. I told you I was sick. <laughs> <laughs> but when you think about that sort of an epitaph of your life, could you get anything better put on there than just a servant, a servant of the Lord, for that to be said about you and it to be in some measure true? I don't know that you could get in better company, could you, than that? The Lord himself was a servant. He's identified as the servant of Jehovah, the servant of the Lord, you see. And, and so, for James now to say that, I ask myself the question, am I? And what does that mean to say I'm a servant of the Lord? Not just that I do things for the Lord. That's not just what it means. It means that a servant, really, his whole will was subjected to another's. Servant never got up in the morning and said, let's see what I think I'll do today. What does my master have me do today? Servant never got up and says, what would I like? What would my master like? You see, uh, the whole concept of that servant. And now for James, even to me, in my mind, to say, in, the, in those terms, you know, my half-brother, if you will, 
but he's the Lord Jesus Christ, and I am his servant. It's powerful, really, isn't it? To see what the Lord can do in a life. His will or mine. That's the battle, isn't it, for believers? That's really, in a nutshell, what it comes down to every day as we get up. Whose will? His or mine? So I ask myself that question. He writes to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Can anybody think how that could be a corrective? If we're thinking in correctives? Are there lost tribes? Well, there weren't at that point, were there? Oh, you hear that, don't you? There's a whole false system of teaching based on that. It used to be called British Israelism. That the twelve tribes, or the ten lost tribes, you see, became the nation of England, and and on and on it goes, you know. Huge following of people, even though we may not know much about it and may not be as prominent today. But that whole concept was rooted in the fact of these ten lost tribes that migrated somehow to Europe and you know, England and, and the whole deal. Right? There weren't there weren't lost tribes then, because James writes to them. Twelve. Yes. You say that's corrective, perhaps because just the nation that they'd be scattered was disciplinary from the Lord. Well, the diaspora, um, the scattering. Uh, I I don't take that one, this particular one, to be so much as uh, disciplinary of the Lord, because many of them were scattered when the persecution happened with Stephen and others there around Jerusalem. But it is interesting, the word diaspora, which is still used by the Jews today, the dispersion, but the diaspora, um, the very word, anybody know what the word means? Two words, as often compound words are. Uh, and, and so the word spora is the word for spore or seed. The seed was scattered abroad. That's literally the, literally the language of it. So in the scattering, it was the scattering of seed all abroad. So whatever the means was, persecution or other words, it was God's way of scattering the seed, spreading it out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now... The other question that comes to mind, of course, is when we think of the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, again, if James is the first letter you know, written, um, that uh, obviously these would have been Jews, but I, I, I take it that they would have been Christians. So these were Christian refugees who got scattered throughout different regions and so on, you see. So, and yet he still identifies them as the Jewish uh, designation, the 12 tribes scattered abroad, but Christians now. So he couples that together in that sense. Servant of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes. Let's you know from the outset, in a sense, that these are not just Israelites, but these were believers who'd been scattered abroad, which is why uh, they were facing these trials and temptations and, and suffering and persecution and so on there's internal evidence for that too Uh, he will say in verse 1 
of chapter 2, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to persons. So the brethren that he's writing to, it's about the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And there's other internal evidence um, as well. As I said in verse 7 of chapter 2, that worthy name by which you are called, the Lord Jesus Christ, and so on. So Christian refugees scattered abroad by persecution that happened in the church, and for other means as well, they would have been scattered as they were. But yes, they were scattered and still are, Israel as a whole. But um, more specifically, I think these would have been Christians that had been scattered, Jewish Christians. Now, one of the verses I have often struggled with is verse 2. Don't know that I've ever gotten over struggling with verse (laughs) 2. Count it all joy. (laughs) When you fall into various forms of trials, temptations, you know, that kind of thing. I take trials, temptations to be testings, trials. Count it all joy. Is that the first thing that comes to your mind? You know, um, I don't really, I wanted to print it out and I didn't do it. I apologize. Shouldn't even tell you, then I wouldn't have to apologize for what you don't know. But anyway, uh, <laughs> there's an interesting outline, and maybe I'll work on it retroactively, but um, that uh, outlines the book of James sort of this way, like chapter 1, chapter 5, chapter 2, chapter, you know, and, and brings it in like this with the middle part being in uh, chapter 3, so to speak. But it's interesting that the parallels between chapter 1, chapter 5, and so on. So you count it all joy. And then if you do go to um, chapter 5, verse 11, Behold, we count them happy. Count. There's your word count again. Which endure. You've heard of the patience or the perseverance of Job. You have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful, compassionate, and of tender mercy. So is that what you thought when you read the book of Job? Wow, the Lord is compassionate and full of mercy. (laughs) You know, you're reading the book of Job thinking, isn't God compassionate? (laughs) Isn't God merciful? Count it all joy when you fall into it. You know, of course, it is coupled with the fact in verse 11 of chapter 5, isn't it? You've seen the end of the Lord. Now, we haven't seen the end. When we see the end, we'll be able to say, you know, yes, the Lord is compassionate, full of mercy. But anyway, on this, uh, how do we count it all joy? First, do I? And if I do, how do I count it all joy? Any help? Help me with the verse I've struggled with all my life. <laughs> Dig me out. Well, let's take the word count. It is an accounting term. Reckon, count. It calls for an evaluation. It calls for an assessment. So that's where we begin. To make an evaluation or to make an assessment. That when these things come, first of all, corrective number one, which is a very basic and elementary one, but I think it's important to realize that as a believer, I'm not exempt from trials. I'm not exempt from difficulties, testings, temptations like that in life. I'm not exempt from tragedy in life. 
and things that can happen that are hard to take, you know, hard to take. Don't even have to elaborate. We all can think of situations that just almost defy explanation and understanding. They don't defy explanation and understanding if there is no God. It's when you put God into the equation that you then ask, how? If God is God, how? Why? When we begin to make the evaluation, we realize, number one, the negative side is I'm not exempt. Number two, the positive side is it's part of a process. And the positive side that it's part of a process, he calls this in verse uh, three, knowing this, the testing, the trying of your faith. Okay, who's trying our faith? Who is he referring to there? Who's testing our faith? Somebody has to put us to the test. Who is it? The Lord, right? So if the Lord is putting us to the test in that sense, you mean that the Lord is so concerned with my life that there's a process that he's going to involve himself in? He's going to get involved in my life to the level that he's concerned about my faith? And, and involving in my spiritual education, which is what chastening really is more properly probably thought about. That it's more than just corrective. It's more than just pun it's not punishment. It's my spiritual education. It's going to cost something for God to be involved. Education is a very costly thing. Some of you may learn. <laughs> Even if you do home education. It's a costly thing. It'll cost you time and effort and labor. And then you get into higher education. It'll cost you money. It'll cost somebody money. <laughs> it's a very uh, long process, isn't it? It has an end in view. But will the Lord involve himself in my life? The Lord. So that's a, that's a positive side of it. Another corrective is that things that happen in life are not just bad luck. They're not just fate. They're not just arbitrary. Things just don't happen. There's a purpose as a believer. And another corrective that's important to remember is that trials are not an indicator of the Lord's displeasure. There can be things that happen in life that the Lord may use to get my attention. But it doesn't always mean the Lord's not pleased with me because things, bad things happen. doesn't necessarily mean that at all. That's where Job's friends went wrong, wasn't it? Just fess up, Job. You sin, man. God wouldn't do this to you if you hadn't sinned. And the more they said it, the madder Job got. And began to defend his own righteousness then. Even to the point of almost, you know, going against what God's character was. But they were wrong in the end. God said so. It wasn't that Job sinned. God had a purpose, a higher purpose. That's the amazing thing to me about Job 1 and 2. The chapters, I always have said that... Part of Job's problem was that Job didn't have the book of Job. <laughs> he doesn't know anything about what's going on in chapter 1 and 2. Behind the scenes. This purpose that's going on. All of a sudden, man, he just gets slammed, you know. All his children in one day. You know. All of them. And all, wouldn't have matter whether it was 1, 2, or 10. It was all gone in one day on top of everything else but forget everything else the children all in one day all of them and Job knows nothing about what's going on between the Lord 
and Satan in heaven observing him. Have you considered my servant Job? Anyway, it's not necessarily an indicator of the Lord's displeasure that we go through the things in life. It is difficult to understand, is it not? Would you say that part of the, uh, the joy is somewhat confusing is, is knowing the process that it's going Knowing that there is uh, a, uh, a future to it, right? Like uh, when, when Paul writes in, in, in uh, Romans, knowing that the tribute, uh, knowing this, right? There's something I know that the tribulation works patience and patience experience, experience hope. So the trials that come could be for correction, it could be, but the other aspect is perfection, right? I'm being perfected to be like the Lord Jesus, right? So, so part of the joy then would be knowing the divine side, right? It's not easy for me when I'm sick as a dog, or my car is broken down, or I have no job, or my health is failing, whatever, it's, 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 it's not easy. But if I'm instructed in the Word of God, I know that there's a process going on with an end of Yeah. All the above. I think that's how the joy must be. And I've tried to make that word be something other than gladness. And, and I can't. Mm-hmm. That's good. That has something to do with it too, doesn't it? That to the ones he's writing to, you count it all joy. Why were they suffering? Why were they scattered? Because they'd come to believe in that name. So as another evidence, you see, of, of doing what Paul would say in Colossians, filling up the sufferings of Christ which are behind, he left behind, you see. In other words, not that his sufferings were incomplete, but he left something for us to identify with him in some measure to say that if this is what my suffering stems from or my trial stems from, I can count that all joy. That's good. Thank you. And you'll see that there's uh, something to count in verse 2, something to know in verse 3, Something to allow in verse 4, let patience. Something to ask for in verse 5. All that tie in with that, you see. So the assessment begins to take place. And I can count it joy and gladness in that sense of why I'm suffering, why I may be going through this, particularly when it's those things that it seems to me in this context... Um, are sufferings that are incurred because I'm a believer. There may be other reasons I suffer, but the sufferings that come because I'm a believer in Christ, I can count that all joy. And when I realize what the process is, what it produces, it, it does something, you see. It's not a just um, meaningless it works something, patience or perseverance. And then when that process takes place and has its perfect work, 
you become mature, complete, entire, nothing lacking. It's got a goal to it, an end of what God is doing. It is given to you not only to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but also to suffer in his behalf. Paul would write to Philippians, and he writes that from prison. He writes that from a a life that I say uh, had its disappointments because here's a man who was a traveler, a go-getter, you know, one who wanted to launch out, reach out, go with the gospel and that kind of thing. When I come by you, he says to the Romans, I, I make my way to Spain. I want to go where the gospel's never been preached before. The name's not known. And now you throw that man in prison. You lock him up. He can't travel. can't go. <laughs> and Philippians has been called the epistle of joy. The things have happened to me, he says. Circumstances I find myself in have made new advances in the gospel. Carve new paths. They that are of Caesar's household greet you. <laughs> so, anyway, um, yeah, making that assessment, knowing why in those senses. And I think that ties in really neatly with who he's writing to here and why they were scattered and why they were being persecuted. So that seems to be the emphasis of these particular trials, although I think it is broader than that as well. And in verse 5, one of the things that we have to understand too, and, and, and I think it's helpful, necessary in a trial, when things happen that we can't explain or understand or wrap our minds around in life, one of the things that we need to turn to is the character of God and it's not just glib to say God is too wise to make a mistake or or too loving to not do the right thing that's reality and so he turns them to the character of God verse 5 he gives to all men liberally he gives you see Here's the character of God. He gives to all men liberally, upbraideth not, and so on. That's the character of God he points to, right? The God who gives. Now, it's, it's, there's a line in a song that says, I think it's in that song, um, I'll praise you in the storm. Praise the God who gives and takes away that's a tough one isn't it the God who gives I'll praise him and I'll praise the God who takes away but the character of God how we need that in trial resting on the character of God I don't know what time we go to anyway it's 20 till if that means anything (laughs) <laughs> we often quote verse 5 from many places in life mm-hmm. 
Yeah. It's especially encouraging to note the context is that we don't know how to count it all joy sometimes. We're just trying to figure it out. Yeah. It's like, you know, we feel bewildered. But he says, in the midst of that bewilderment, ask God for the wisdom to see in our circumstances what He sees and what He wants. Absolutely, yeah. And that's the wisdom, particularly, is the primary application of this verse. That's right. Wisdom in that sense really is seeing things as God sees them. Seeing it from his perspective. We need to see it as he sees it. That's one of the main um, interpretations or, or definitions, if you will. I take it, Dave, of wisdom. To see things from God's perspective. Yeah, um, somebody may have a different rendering for that. Reproach is not without reproach. Doesn't scold you for asking. not going to say, uh, listen, uh, I've told you a dozen times, I'm not going to tell you again. <laughs> That's what parents do, you know. <laughs> Get out of here. Don't ask me anything. No. Doesn't upbraid. Even when his creatures call into question his own character sometimes. So now we come to another verse that, that troubles me and has for all my life that, I, that I've been saved and reading the book of James. And that's verse 6. But, here's the qualifier. Here's the condition. Let him ask in faith. Nothing wavering. No doubting. So, have you ever done that? <laughs> I mean, have you ever, you know... Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, you ask and you have no doubt whatsoever. You never wavered even a little bit. Not even a little... Not even a smidgen of corruption, you know. <laughs> not even a tiny tad of wavering. Exactly is what I mean. What I mean exactly. Yes. What do I mean? Yeah. What does it mean? <laughs> That's why I say there's a couple in here that, that you, you got to struggle through. Because if you waver, you're like a wave of the sea driven with a wind and tossed. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything. Of the Lord. So we go from the God who gives liberally and gives to all and doesn't upbraid 
to let not that man think you get anything from him. It's quite a switch, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Yeah. So I do. I'm human. I, I hear you. I, I, yeah. I, I say, Lord, help my uh, my unbelief, my doubt. I, I, I hear you. I can grow in faith, right, as I move on in my Christian experience, but I still have to ask in faith and, Lord, help my does anybody have the reading uh, without doubting? Something like that? You do. What is what is your say, Cassidy? With no doubting. I'm going to suggest that that might help in our understanding a bit, because the wavering seems to mean, okay, I believe, but Lord, you know, you know, but without with no doubting, you see. You think that's? Are you saying that's what yours reads, or that's what you're saying? Without any doubting, okay. Yeah. Well, the, here's the thing that I see in this. One of the things I think is helpful, at least to me, that as you mentioned, Sermon on the Mount. James is very much like Sermon on the Mount in many ways. He's also very much like Proverbs. You, you know, cut and dry. Take away the middle ground. You know, black and white, no gray. And you go through Proverbs, and it's like that. It's like boom, boom, you know, it's this or that. And what that does when you take away the middle ground, it, it forces you to make a decision. Here's what a fool is. Here's what a wise person is. Which one are you? You see? There's no middle ground. It's this, it's this. James does a lot of that. So if we think of it that way, there's no middle ground. It's one or the other. You either believe God or you're a doubter. And if you're a doubter, well, maybe you're not a believer in God. That's, that's one of the ways I take it. And I take it partly that way, too, because over in chapter 4, he's going to say... Um, Using the same language in verse 8. Draw nigh to God. He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's the same double-minded as in verse 8 of chapter 1. Now, it seems to me that this double-minded in 4.8, I don't see how he's a believer. Cleanse your hand, you sinner. Purify your heart, you double-minded. You see, you split mind in that sense. So it may be one of the things we find in chapter 1 is taking away that middle ground. Which are you? Are you a person who believes in God? You're going to call on God? Because if you're not, don't think you're going to get anything. That man. Don't let him think he receive anything, you see, because he doesn't believe God. That's a suggestion, anyway, that seems to me. When I look at that verse 6, I was in the situation of a believer. Yeah. Things, but, you know, 
it's easy for us to chastise ourselves in that doubting stage when we're trying to figure out if our focus is on the circumstance and the trial yeah. and we're asking for wisdom we can't figure it out yeah. that bewilderment that still remains is not the doubting he's talking about I think here he's saying don't doubt that character of God that he is going to give the wisdom that he is that one who gives general, genuine, generously liberally he's not, so, so when I'm asking and I'm trusting that that's true I may not have the answer yet yeah I may need to keep hanging in there until he gives me that perspective. But that doesn't mean I'm in that doubting category. Mm-hmm. If I'm still trusting and leaning on the fact that he is somehow going to give me that wisdom, mm-hmm. he is going to give it, you know, help us through all, and all those things, that process is still working. Yeah, because if this verse means that when I really am going through it, and I have some little bit of wavering or question in my mind, I'm done. You know, I'm done. I, 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 I'm never going to make it <laughs> if that means that. And if it means that I somehow, you know, like a stone, just believe against all odds the unbelievable, you know, that I have to have that kind of faith. I, I just stood in a hospital room where, a, where a, a wife, her husband in the mid-50s, um, and was on a, a respirator. I was there when I was visiting. Wanda's in the floor, one floor having her surgery. Carl Fairclaw's up. You know, I'm visiting him. And then I find out that this guy's on the same floor as Carl. So I go over to visit. You know, anyway. And so and I went in and... Uh, the wife says to to calls his name, but he's on a respirator. I think he was he looked like he was already gone to me. That they were just keeping him going. And uh, Larry's Larry's here. He's going to pray. He's going to pray for your healing. I said I called her name. I said, Well, I you know I'll be glad to pray. But you're going to pray for his healing. Well, I said. I'd be glad to ask God to heal him. But that the Lord's will be done. No, 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 no. If you're going to pray that, don't pray. Yeah, she, she said, I already know what God's will is. He's already told me what His will is. He's given me verses in Scripture to tell me what His will is. So, no offense. I'll still love you. But if you're not going to pray that God heals him, don't pray. Well, okay, I, I won't be praying if that's the condition, you know. And he died three or four days later. I need to get with her because, I mean, what do you do when that, you know, you think, you believe, you know, because i got to believe. I can't have any, any unbelief come in because then it won't get, it won't happen, you see. I mean, you talk about causing your faith to crash. So, it can't be that, can it? Well, you see. So, it can't be that. So, I don't want to be that man. 
<laughs> whatever he is and whatever we make of it, right? <laughs> and how do you not be that man? Well, what does he say next? Let the brother of low degree rejoice <laughs> that he's exalted. You know, be that brother of low degree in that sense, right? Well, we could go on all morning. It's been a very profitable Praise the Lord. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, uh, uh, somebody, one of you men want to close in prayer?